Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Live from London, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Djokovic drama. The tennis star is allowed to remain in Australia for now. Tense talks. The US and Russia begin a week of crucial meetings over Ukraine and winter warning. China takes measures to keep Beijing COVID-free ahead of the Olympics. It's Monday. Let's make a move. And well, welcome to First Move once again. Great to be back with you as we get straight to our top story today. Out, back and in the open, at least for now. Novak Djokovic is free from immigration detention and could play in the Australian Tennis Open after a court battle in Australia. A few minutes ago, he tweeted, I'm pleased and grateful that the judge overturned my visa cancellation. Despite all that has happened, I want to stay and try to compete at the Australian Open. Paul Hancocks is in Melbourne for us now. Paul, the ball, certainly at least for now, in Novak Djokovic's court. He is free and out in the open, but the final serve surely goes with the immigration minister and we have to wait and see what the government's final decision is. Well, that's right, Julia. We've heard from the ministry already this evening uh, and they have said that they're trying to figure out whether the minister himself will decide to personally revoke the visa. He has the power to do that. And we heard at the end of the uh, the hearing uh, on Monday that uh, the government's lawyers said that could be a possibility, but this could be back uh, in, front of, uh, in front of the court, uh, of course, if he then decides to appeal that. So, Yes, tonight, Novak Djokovic is a free man. We know from a press conference that his family has just held that he's also been out on the court already practising, so obviously trying to get his mind towards what he thinks is is the job ahead, the Australian Open, starting in a week's time. But it isn't necessarily over. Now, what we heard from the judge today, though, was that he believed there were procedural issues at the airport when his visa was revoked. He said that Novak Djokovic was not given the chance to speak to his lawyer. He was not given the chance to speak to uh, Tennis Australia organisers uh, to, to find out what he should do and that where is where they were at fault. So of course we wait now to see what will happen with the Immigration Minister. It's the early hours of Tuesday morning here uh, in Melbourne. We have been seeing many uh, supporters of Novak Djokovic celebrating in Melbourne, uh, but also angry at the way that he has been treated. But we're also hearing uh, from the uh, the affidavit that Djokovic uh, had in court saying that he did test positive on December 16th for COVID 
There are many questions remaining uh, about his actions in the day of and the day after that positive test result. We did see him uh, in public. We saw him uh, on the 16th and on the 17th. He was at a panel discussion, uh, maskless. He was also at a tenants award ceremony uh, with a number of young people uh, maskless as well. Now, at that press conference, the parents and, and the brother were asked about that, and it's at that point they decided to adjourn that press conference, so didn't want to address uh, that, uh, that very question that, that many are now uh, asking. But at this point, early hours of Tuesday morning, Novak Djokovic will be preparing for the Australian Open, and Tuesday morning we will see if the Australian government has a response. Yes, one wonders whether it is a, a somewhat pyrrhic victory in that case if more questions are asked about what he knew on December 16th and then still perhaps attended some of these events knowing that he was COVID positive. And of course, we don't know that yet and we have to keep asking those questions and, and certainly will do. Where's popular opinion on this, Paula, in Australia? I mean, Australia has, has had some of the strictest border controls from what I can see and what we've reported on over the last two years around the world. People have been prevented from seeing their family, from going in or out of Australia for, for many, many months. How do they feel about the fact that he's been allowed into the country, at least for now, and remains unvaccinated, irrespective of whether he has a, a medical reason for, for not doing so? There's not a huge amount of sympathy for Novak Djokovic in Australia, it has to be said, in, in particular in, in Melbourne. In Victoria is a state that has been particularly hit hard by COVID-19. They have had well over 250 days in lockdown here. Uh, so certainly to see somebody else, a celebrity, being allowed to come in unvaccinated uh, is, is not going to sit well with many people. As you say, the border controls were some of the toughest in the world in Australia. For two years, many Australian citizens abroad were unable to come home. Many Australians here were unable to leave the country. And we heard heartbreaking stories of, of people not able to, to attend funerals, not able to see loved ones when they were ill. Uh, and it has been a particularly strong and in some cases brutal immigration policy and border control policy. So certainly there isn't going to be sympathy uh, for someone who has chosen to be unvaccinated uh, coming into the country. In fact, when he tweeted Novak Djokovic that he was coming and had a medical exemption. There was a backlash here as well. Uh, the, the, the vaccination rates in, in Australia are extremely high, well over 90%, uh, because this is the way that they believe they are going to get out of this uh, uh, this pandemic and and this was uh, the, the the way that they could get out of the lockdowns as well as as the government said. So certainly that the level of sympathy among Serbian community here in Melbourne is high. The sympathy wider in Australia is, is not quite so high. Oh, and that makes it tough for the government to make a final decision on this. We await the words of the immigration minister. Paul Hancock, it's great to have you with us. Thank you. Now, from drama down under to high-stakes geopolitics in Geneva. The US and Russia kick off a week of tense talks on the Ukraine crisis that could be the most significant reset of relations since the breakup of the Soviet Union. The U.S. Secretary of State warns he's not expecting breakthroughs. I don't think we're going to see any uh, any breakthroughs in the coming uh, in the coming week. We're going to be able to put things on the table. The Russians will do the same. It's hard to see making actual progress uh, as opposed to talking in an atmosphere of, of escalation with a gun to Ukraine's head. So if we're actually going to make progress, uh, we're going to have to see de-escalation. Russia pulling back from the threat that it currently poses to Ukraine. 
the Russia-US talks come as Ukraine meets with NATO ahead of the Russian summit with the alliance on Wednesday. Nick Robertson joins us now. Nick, great to have you with us. The Russians have been incredibly clear about what their lines are as far as these negotiations are concerned. I think the Ukrainians actually come into this as well, saying, look, we shouldn't be negotiating until the troops are removed from their border. The West has said, look, we're not hoping for much. What does diplomatic success look like for each of the players involved here? You know, I think a diplomatic success is on such a distant horizon at the moment, it's very hard to define. There's been discussion that there is the potential for some sort of long-term negotiation over arms reduction but on the key ground that it is reciprocal. Uh, and that's going to be a very thorny and difficult issue to work out. There have been arms control agreements between the United States and Russia, long-term ones that have fallen by the wayside. The Russians are saying that they want quick results, that they don't want these talks to drag on. That was the position of the uh, Russian foreign minister just a few days ago. The deputy foreign minister, um, Sergei, uh, Sergei Rybakov, who's leading the talks here in Geneva for the Russian side, is due to give a press conference in a few hours' time and that, according to Russian officials, will give a readout of how the Russians think these talks are progressing. Uh, going into this particular round of talks, they said that they, they were disappointed with what they were hearing from Washington, disappointed with what they were hearing from NATO in Brussels as well. So on both sides, uh, expectations have been played down. And going into this round of negotiations, um, the U.S. side, led by Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman, have been clear on their position. They're not going to talk about um, anything to do with Ukraine or NATO, nothing w- about them without them in the room at the table. So this is really bilateral issues between the United States and Russia at the table today. But from the U.S. side, they're expecting to get a very clear understanding of Russia is really coming to the table, able to negotiate against its very high demands that Ukraine not be allowed to join NATO, NATO to roll back uh, its forces from, its, from, from Eastern Europe, uh, demands that NATO has already said can't be accepted. So, you know, later this afternoon, I think we should begin to see... Um, is there more mileage to go and can we reach that distant horizon to begin to see what that diplomatic solution might look like? I mean, what Moscow is asking for here is a, a rewriting of, of European security architecture. It's uh, effectively a win, surely, that they're even having this discussion, whether or not they actually get anything and that they've brought everybody around the table or at least are around the table. Where do the Europeans stand ultimately on this, Nick? They want to have a voice. The EU is not represented uh, per se at the table. NATO is. Uh, that includes many EU members. The OSCE, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, includes many European members. But uh, the EU as a body, uh, as an important uh, geopolitical uh, body for Europe, it doesn't have uh, a, a specific period of negotiation or specific meetings with, with, with the Russians. And so that's causing a little consternation. But that's why you see the United States being very clear. NATO being very clear that all partners are being talked to. You know, the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, has spoken with what's known as the uh, the the, uh, the Bucharest Nine, uh, has spoken with, which is many of the sort of former East European states, but has spoken, you know, in a joint phone call with the Italian, the British, uh, the French, the German foreign ministers as well. But you had just last week, you had Josip Borrell, the uh, European Union's uh, foreign policy chief, on a, on a lightning visit to uh, Ukraine to get the feel of uh, the, the lie of the land there. You had over the weekend, he had a conversation with the NATO Secretary General, Jens Stoltenberg. Um, Josip Borrell also spoke with the European Commission President, Ursula von der Leyen. So, you know, there's been wide-ranging discussions. Everyone's saying we're on the same page. Where does Europe stand on this? Um, 
pretty much in the position that it doesn't want to be, uh, it doesn't want to see Russia rewarded for its aggression. It wants its security infrastructure uh, along the eastern borders to be uh, protected, and it doesn't want it to be drawn down if there's not a reciprocal move on Russia's side. Let, ro roll into that as well. Europe's dependence, quite heavy dependence, on Russia's gas and escalation potentially mm. could impact that flow. That's not on the table per se at the moment, but, but I think it's well recognized that, uh, that, that there is the potential for that further down the road if things, if things go off track at these talks. Yeah, it remains a critical issue. Um, they all seem to be on the same page, but it's a rather large page, and I think we require a diagram to, uh, to help us explain it. Nick, great to have you with us. Thanks for you were here for us. Great to chat to you there. OK, let's move on to Kazakhstan, where the country's president calls last week's anti-government protests an attempted coup. Authorities say more than 160 people were killed and about 8,000 others were detained during the unrest. Fred Pleitgen joins us with the latest. Fred, great to have you with us. He also said that the coup was coordinated by what he called a single centre, mm. and I'm quoting him, and that the hunt for the terrorists was ongoing. Any more information about who those terrorists might be and what he meant by a single centre? Well, a single center, it's very difficult to ascertain what exactly he did mean. But I think another thing that he also said sort of might shed some light on that. He did say that he believed that at least some of the people who were involved in those protests were, were trained outside of Kazakhstan. And that's sort of one of the things, of course, uh, that we have heard from the Kazakh government. We've also heard from some others as well. For instance, from the Russians, that they believe that there is outside influence behind all this without very much being specific as to who they actually mean. The Kazakhs did say, and the Kazakh president, also said, this was in a call, by the way, uh, today, which uh, was also attended by Russian President Vladimir Putin, that there would be more evidence forthcoming. So far, uh, that evidence has not been provided yet. But certainly the Kazakhs are saying that that crackdown that they've launched, uh, that anti-terror operation, as they, uh, as they put it, will be ongoing. And you know, we were talking about those numbers of, of detained. Right now, the Kazakhs are saying that it's around 8,000. Those numbers over the past couple of days that I've been following the story here have really shot up. If you look at throughout the weekend. We started the weekend. We were around 3,000. Then it was around 4,000 yesterday. Now we're around 8,000 already. And then you have those 160 people killed. That number also was one that shot up over the weekend, Julia. And if you, if you sort of dissect that number a little bit, uh, of those 164 people who were killed, um, around 100, a little over 100, were actually killed in Almaty alone. That, of course, was really one of the epicenter where a lot of that violence took place, where also we saw some of those awful videos of security forces uh, opening fire on what seemed to be uh, civilians uh, there, there in that crowd. And certainly some of those videos that did raise a lot of international questions, even as the cause that government continues to claim that the people who were behind those demonstrations were terrorists, as they put it. Now, if we look at what's going on today, uh, Julia, it certainly seems as though the uh, Kazakh government is getting things under control. Things seem to, be, seem to be calming down. There was a day of warning today, and also the Internet was switched on at least for a short period of time. People have really been in the dark over the past couple of days, can at least get some information. But one of the things... That President Tokayev of Kazakhstan said is that it was really some of those outside forces that help or are helping uh, the Kazakhs get this under control. Of course, the largest troop contingency from the CSTO, that peacekeeping force, as they put it, comes from Russia. And the Russians are saying those forces are going to stay on the ground in Kazakhstan as long as needed, Julia. Yeah, and that outside threat, of course, critical to legitimising the reason to invite those Russian-led yeah. troops into the country in the first place. And mm -hmm. he did say he'd provide the international community proof 
over what happened. So, so we await that, Fred, certainly. Great to have you with us. Thank you, right. Fred Pleitgen. A major port city in partial lockdown, the Chinese city of Tianjin, are testing its entire population of 14 million people after medics found the country's first locally transmitted Omicron cases there. Selena Wang joins us with more. Selena, China continuing with its zero COVID policy. What, three and a half weeks out from the Olympics, desperate attempts to keep COVID out of Beijing ahead of that? Exactly, Julia. And that is the key context that Mm -hmm. we're just weeks away from the Winter Games in Beijing and intensifying pressure on authorities across China to keep COVID-19 cases low. So against that backdrop, just 80 miles away from Beijing in the northeastern port city of Tianjin, they are reporting the first case of locally transmitted Omicron cases. Now, after reporting at least two Omicron cases, Tianjin is taking the action of testing its 14 million residents. It's put 29 residential communities under strict lockdown. Citizens cannot leave the city without special permission. And overall, this is after overall, the city has reported at least 40 COVID-19 cases, which Julia, as we've talked about before, sounds dramatically low compared to what we're seeing, the numbers we're seeing in the U.S. and other parts of the world. But again, as you say, China doubling down on this zero COVID-19 strategy, which continues to involve mass testing, strict lockdowns or quasi lockdowns and these extensive quarantine measures. And the outbreak in Tianjin is especially significant because of the close proximity to Beijing. It's only about 30 minutes away by high-speed rail. Typically, there are hundreds of thousands of people that regularly commute. That's an estimated number. And now most of those trains are now banned to try and stop the spread. But already, Omicron has spread far beyond Tianjin in China. Hundreds of miles away in the central province of Henan, there have been Omicron cases reported linked to a traveler in Tianjin And it's also not just people of Tianjin whose lives are being disrupted. The city of Xi'an, that city and its 13 million residents have been under strict lockdown since December 23rd. And since then, there has been the steady outpouring of both heartbreaking and desperate stories of people struggling to get food, basic necessities and medical care, including this viral video of a pregnant woman who was turned away from a hospital because she couldn't provide valid proof that she did not have COVID-19. And according to that video, She was standing outside for hours. She was bleeding and ultimately was admitted to the hospital, but ultimately had a miscarriage. Now, the hospital officials have been punished. But really, Julia, all of this is highlighting and putting focus on the human toll that China's zero COVID-19 strategy is taking. And critics would say that the suffering and and disruption and pain that people have to go through to achieve that goal is not sustainable. And as the Olympics near, we'll have to see how it plays out, Julia. Yeah, an impossibly high cost. And as the rest of the world has has proven, containing Omicron in particular has been sort of impossible, incredibly difficult, if not impossible. Selena Wang, thank you for that. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. A faulty electric heater was the cause of a New York apartment fire on Sunday that killed 19 people, including nine children, officials say. Scores of people were hurt. Investigators are looking into the building's fire alarm system. One resident telling CNN the building's alarms often rang when there was no fire. In Brazil, at least 10 people have died after a massive rock broke off a cliff and crashed down on top of tourists in motorboats on Saturday. At least 32 people were injured. Officials say heavy rain had loosened the rock. Okay, stay to come. Still to come, plenty more on First Move. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move, live from London this week, hoping to bring you some gems from the Thames over the next few days. I'll be casting a London eye over all that's going by, and we can start with the week on Wall Street. The S&P 500 set to fall for a fifth straight session. Tech set to extend the 4.5% losses suffered last week on Fed tightening fears. I think investors today are also processing fresh comments from Goldman Sachs, which now sees four Federal Reserve rate hikes this year versus market expectations for just three, just three. Anticipated Fed tightening helping drive U.S. bond yields higher to benchmark 10-year U.S. yields now at levels not seen since the start of the pandemic. You've got the 10-year U.S. yield there approaching 1.8%. Last Friday's jobs report showing weaker than expected jobs growth, but robust wage growth further evidence that labour markets are tightening and helping contribute to rising inflation pressure. Much to discuss, and Alicia Levine joins us now. She's Head of Global Equities and Capital Markets Advisory at BNY Mellon Wealth Management. Happy New Year, Alicia. Great to see you. Um, December clearly marked a regime shift as far as the Federal Reserve is concerned. They're going to start pulling back on policy. They're going to do it far quicker, I think, than investors certainly anticipated. What do you make of Goldman Sachs's view that we could see four rate hikes this year? So I think the four rate hikes has become consensus amongst strategists and economists on Wall Street. Not yet priced into the market, though. If you look at that two-year yield, we're still pricing in between two and three hikes for, for, for this year. So the market has to catch up to the strategists. I think what the market is mulling over is that that very fast growth rate that we're coming out of Q4 with and moving into 2022 is probably going to slow down mid-year. You're probably going to start seeing ISM manufacturing start to roll over, not go ne- not go under 50, but go comfortably closer to 50 to 52, 54 than 60. And when that happens, that signals that growth is slowing. And so with that, you've got a lot of very complicated variables. It's not really a linear story here. You've got the Fed tightening sooner than the market expected, inflation running hotter longer, in part because of Omicron, which came out of the blue. So you got to deal with the inflation issue, but then you've got real growth slowing by mid-year. So a lot to balance out. And I think the market is telling us maybe you don't get that fourth rate hike this year. We do think you will start, though, with quantitative tightening. And that's what the issue that the issue that the market is really most worried about. Can the economy handle this? I mean, we're talking about a potential mid-year slowdown from incredibly strong growth levels. The jobs data was weaker than expected on Friday. But again, the recovery that we've seen has been incredibly strong up to now. I mean, the average of last year was incredibly strong in terms of jobs recaptured. Can all of these risks be managed? And then that answers the question of whether investors can perhaps manage these risks. So so, so let me just start with, with, with the conclusion, which is we expect the market to be up this year. We yeah. expect it to be a pretty good year in the market, but not without turmoil. And mm. the turmoil is because the policy story from the Fed is not going to be linear, not something you can price in the first week of January and let it sit. And that's kind of what's happened. We've had deep over-positioning towards value over growth stocks in the first week. And and I I suspect that's not how it's going to play out the rest of the year. So yes, the economy can handle it. The the pandemic in the end was more akin to a natural shock than it was a financial crisis, whether caused by debt or bubbles or anything else. So therefore it can come out of it 
We're not worried about the real economy here, but there is going to be volatility in the markets. I doubt we're going to get another up 27% year. But, Julia, I'll say this. Since 1950, when you have a year where the market's up 20% or more, 75% of the time, the next year is up 10, 10 digits or more. So it doesn't feel so today, but I suspect we're going to even out in our sectors by the middle of the year. Yeah, I mean, investors will certainly take that 10% if, uh, if they can get it. What drives it? Because pre-Omicron, we were seeing some of the reopening plays, the travel stocks, the experiential type stocks all benefiting. And then Omicron was a bit of a OMG. Do we quickly get back to those kind of plays particularly given the so, data that we're seeing. So I, I like you know, I make this joke, which isn't actually a joke, which is every time we get a new variant, we have another opportunity to reopen. Yeah. So we do think that those reopen names will be strong on the other end of it. You know, we're looking to South Africa. We in the US are looking to the UK to see how you know quickly Omicron can can kind of speed through the population. You know, expecting by March here we're at the end of a peak. I hate sounding like an epidemiologist, but that's what it's looking like. So you'll get reopening names working, we think. You know, we'd say this, those speculative names where companies are trading multiples of revenue and where the earnings don't match the revenue growth rates, where the revenue where the earnings are just simply not there. I think those stocks will suffer and may not bounce here. The large cap tech we're pretty comfortable with. They're down about 10%. Could they go lower and take the S&P index with them? Yes, they could. But we're not concerned about that because we think the earnings power is so strong that we'll get through it. Earnings will drive the market this year, not multiple expansion. We think earnings are probably a little bit undershooting in terms of estimates for this year, which is why we think we're going to be up by the end of the year, because we think earnings will drive through this. Don't forget, the S&P is not the U.S. economy. And the companies that we have can yeah. earn through this. Yep. It's, it's, a it's a great point. reminder. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it is. Very quickly, what do you avoid this year? Okay, you avoid the tails. Right. So you avoid this, you know, the SPACs, the IPOs, the high mm. multiple of revenue stocks. You want to look at a chart from NASDAQ 2000, see what happened. NASDAQ was down 80 percent. Some of those very speculative names will not bounce on this, but many others will on the, on the growth side. So you want to be picky. You want to go for companies that can earn. You want earnings. On the other hand, we think some of those um, those kind of safety areas you know, the deep staples, they get expensive very quickly once they start working because they simply don't grow very fast. So it may be a place to hide tactically, but we think ultimately if you're going to hold something for 12 months, probably not the best place. So my, our message is don't buy the tails, you know, the high spec or the very safe and buy earnings and know what you own, right? And, and know that this Omicron blip is going to be a blip. And if you're going to invest for the year, very hard to time the market. Yeah. So fingers that's crossed. the message. Fingers crossed on the blip. And uh, we like picky on this show. We are very picky. And that's why we speak to you. Elisha Levine, great to have you with us on the show. Thank you for your miss, wisdom. The head of equity and capital markets advisory at BNY Mellon Wealth Management. The Market Open is next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and U.S. stock markets are open for business on Wall Street. A not so frisky first move for the Wall Street majors this Monday. Tech beginning the week down well over 1% on uncertainty about the timing 
and the speed of Federal Reserve tightening, the Nasdaq moving closer to 10% correction territory, will tech bounce as it's done in the past, or is this time different? Yeah, that's a certainly a significantly weaker start to the week. Tech suffering, but a sizzling start to the year for old school sectors like energy, telecom and financials. Banks, of course, thrive in a higher interest rate environment. The major U.S. banks also set to kick off earnings season later this week with powerful profits expected. Also today, the first big U.S. merger of the year, and it's in the gaming sector. Take-Two buying Farmville's parent company Zynga for more than $12.5 billion. Wow, look at the rally in Zynga's share price this morning too. Now, it's been a rocky 2022 so far for cryptocurrencies as Kazakhstan's political unrest hits mining. But more turbulence lies ahead, warns my next guest. He's been in the space since 2011, which he says gives him the status of crypto grandpa. He is the CEO and founder of blockchain, one of the earliest providers of crypto wallets. Since then, blockchain has also become a crypto exchange, processing one third of Bitcoin transactions. It has over 31 million users in more than 200 different countries. And joining us now is Peter Smith, CEO and co-founder of Blockchain. Peter, fantastic to have you on the show. Um, There's some incredibly big numbers there. To someone who may have never heard of what blockchain is and does, give us the vision and what you provide. Sure, we provide uh, products that make it easy for consumers and institutions to be part of the digital currency market. So whether you want to buy your first hundred dollars of Bitcoin, or whether you're an institution and you want to borrow, you know, a hundred million worth of uh, crypto to put on a trade, we're here to provide those products and services. So I just gave numbers that said 31 million users, verified users, and 80 million wallets have been provided. How many of those are active and using the the resources that you provide on a on a daily or monthly basis sure we don't disclose our monthly active user number what i can tell you is that uh actives are up about three and a half x this year and we've done about a trillion in transaction volume to date in the consumer product alone um this year was really big for both us and the crypto markets uh, as well you know, we saw about 10x revenue growth in fiscal year 2021 um, and that was coming off of a very strong year in 2020. And so the space is expanding, you know, rapidly. Um, but as you noted, coming into the call, you know, we've seen a pullback in the last two mm. weeks. And I think one of the first things that I tell folks getting involved in the crypto market is we're still in the early stages of it. And you have to be really ready to hold positions long term. Uh, there's no you know, reliable way to make money fast in crypto. The way to make money as an investor in crypto is to you know, invest responsibly and hold positions for the long term. What does responsible investing look like in, in crypto? So a few things, you know, I think trading on high leverage or trading in, you know, very early stage coins is probably ultimately bad for consumers. Uh, you know, you see a lot of consumers get wiped out of the market like that. I think responsible investing looks like, you know, investing the amount of capital that you can comfortably invest. So capital that you're not afraid to lose or that you're not worried about losing and investing that slowly over time and really recommend that people do that in the blue chip names in the space. So, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, you know, so on and so forth, uh, rather than engaging in a lot of high leverage trading or, you know, early stage uh, altcoin trading. 
I read, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that Bitcoin and Ethereum account for the vast majority of, of your revenues. It's upwards of 70%. But I see huge growth in other aspects of, of what we're seeing in the crypto space, whether it's uh, digital art, whether it's NFTs, gaming. Um, do you intend to continue to branch into those spheres? And, and what proportion of the business do you see those becoming? Because I have spoken and we've spoken on this show to other uh, pure play exchanges and they say, look, there's going to be consolidation and the margins that you see today in particularly in cryptocurrency and digital asset trading are going to be competed down very quickly. I think we've been talking about margin compression in crypto for about seven years. Um, <laughs> but you said it's early yeah. days. <laughs> right. I think we will see it at some point, but it's hard to predict when. We are always aggressively expanding into new products. So three years ago, when we started building institutional products for crypto, people called us crazy. You know, right now we're making a lot of investments in the NFT and gaming verticals. Um, and, you know, and I'm sure people will call us a little crazy for that. You know, to provide a little bit of perspective on the NFT space, though, mm. you know, the global spot crypto market trades about as much volume in a single day as NFTs have in the entire existence of NFTs, right? So the NFT space is still very early. Now, blockchain.com, that means it's the right time to engage. And we're you know, currently building an NFT marketplace that makes it really easy for our consumers uh, to buy any NFT on any protocol. And we're really excited about that feature. But you know, I, I sort of couch this with saying that it's early in that vertical, right? And when you compare that to the sheer volume and market cap of things like Bitcoin and Ethereum, it's going to be a long time before you know NFTs make up a significant revenue line at any major crypto company. Do you think that we can continue to see gains in cryptocurrencies, in particular ones that you mentioned, if you're saying to new investors, and there are many people out there that still haven't engaged in crypto, um, invest in Bitcoin, invest in Ethereum, do you expect to see prices, despite the turbulence that we've started the year with, higher by the end of the year? You know, I never know exactly how to predict the price of crypto over the next six months. Um, if I did, I'd have a cool crystal ball and maybe I'd be in that business. But what I do know is that, you know, we're in the very early days. Less than 5% of U.S. institutions have ever traded crypto. And, you know, probably single digit percent of the world's population has ever interacted with a cryptocurrency. Mm. You know, that number goes up every single year. And as it does, the total market cap of crypto goes up as well. And so, you know, I don't know if the, you know, we go from 5% of institutions to 15% this year or next year, but this is the future. You know, finance powered by open source crypto protocols and a financial system for the internet is an inescapable trend in our world today. And it's only a question of your time horizon. And that's why it's so important to be a long-term investor when you're an investor in the crypto market. You, you're a self-described grandpa of the crypto space. And many of the grandpas that we speak to on this show talk about smart, smart regulation, that the sector does need regulation. That allows, to your point, the institutions to feel comfortable enough to come in and be stronger, bigger players in this space, which perhaps will bring down some of the relative volatility too. Um, you gave an interesting uh, answer on this, and I want to read the quote. If regulation was the answer, you wouldn't have seen banks fail. At the end of the day, the free market corrects this. The market rewards companies that are run well, and the market punishes companies that are run poorly. And I couldn't agree more with you, but do you think this space can successfully regulate itself? Uh, so this is a, a great one. I think, you know, first of all, 
someone else called me a crypto grandpa and I repeated it oh. once and for some reason it stuck with, which is frustrating. <laughs> as so no more man. crypto grandpa. Sorry. Sorry. Oh, good Lord. But uh, I haven't lost my hair yet. <laughs> Look, on regulation, I think what I, I stand by what I said. I think the best regulator is the market. Ultimately, though, at the end of the day, for crypto to succeed, we have to have good regulation. And so, you know, we work with, you know, dozens of regulators all over the world, Europe, US, Latin America, to craft regulations that hopefully keep consumers safe, right? Because mm. when the market corrects bad behavior, it corrects it in a very, you know, often catastrophic way. You know, failure of companies, customer losses, consumer harm. And we'd like to see that prevented, right? Um, and I think that regulators around the world are doing a pretty good job, you know, uh, coming up with rules. I would, you know, highlight the work by Baffin in Germany, which is really forward uh, thinking. I think the Irish regulator is up there as well. And so this year we're going to get crypto specific regulatory frameworks and licenses, which historically crypto companies have had to kind of contort themselves into you know, older regulatory environments or licensing structures, which maybe didn't make a lot of sense for them. This year, we're getting crypto company specific licenses and regulatory regimes. And I think those are going to be really helpful for incre increasing trust and transparency in our market. And as that happens, you know, you'll have more and more institutions involved in the space, and that will dampen volatility over time. Um, I have a million questions. You're going to have to come back on and talk to us because I've not had time. But I know you're raising a lot of money in the private markets. You are also expanding into Latin America. And we talk about that often as a huge opportunity for not only the unbanked, but um, as a crypto market and a savvy crypto market growing as savvy. But I want to ask you about the wealth creation that we're seeing. Um, there was news this week that the Binance CEO is worth $96 billion, and that's the world's largest crypto exchange. Peter, what do you make of the wealth creation? that's going on in this space? And how do you value companies in particular in this space that in many ways are due to their youth, untried and tested? Look, I think the there's two ways you can value, a, three ways you can value a company. What people think it might be worth, uh, the value of the stock at the last private company transaction, or the value you know when it goes public and it actually has a real liquid market. Yeah. Um, you know, and companies are, crypto companies are all across that spectrum, right? Like Binance, for example, as far as I know, has never raised a preferred round, right? So people are just guessing what Binance might be worth and then, you know, projecting CZ's number off of that. You know, then there's companies in the private market like us, but that's not really a liquid, true market test of what we're worth, right? Because it's only a snapshot in time every year or so. And then you have a company like, you know, for example, um, you know, uh, Galaxy Digital, which trades in Canada, which gets a new market price every minute or so, right? That's the real market price of Galaxy on any given minute. And so, you know, until crypto companies are public, it's really hard to know what they're worth at all, right? Because something's only good for, you know, an asset is only as valuable as what you can sell it for, which the vast majority of crypto companies today don't have freely traded liquid stock. And so I think a lot of this is driven by the media where it's like a fun number to speculate around and to you know make a headline out of but i don't think a lot of it's real yet <laughs> we will get you back because we have so much more to discuss but great to begin the conversation peter smith there the ceo and co-founder of blockchain thank you for being so candid and um, i promise never to call you grandpa ever again the end we'll back after this thank Stay you with us. <laughs>
Welcome back to First Move. Flytrex is working to give fast food a whole new meaning. It's the company that's using drones to fulfill orders from places like Starbucks or McDonald's in mere minutes. You might have seen these videos on TikTok. One user in North Carolina got her food airdropped in just 15 minutes. Flytrex says drones are greener, cheaper, safer, and keep food fresher. And Yariv Bash is Flytrex CEO and co-founder, and he joins us now. Great to have you with us on the show. Just explain what your company offers and why you see this as the real future of delivery. Hi, Julia. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, Flytrex is all about getting you, as you said, getting you your meal hotter, faster, and in a mo more affordable way. So when you look at all of those, it seems inevitable. And we're already servicing uh, almost 10,000 families in North Carolina, making deliveries seven days a week, every day, uh, to people's backyards during lunch, dinner. Uh, we send Tylenol in the afternoons, diapers in the evening, just servicing whatever people need in their homes. I mean, let's talk logistics on this because I believe at the moment you have three stations. They have a limit of a one mile radius, but you're working on that, expanding that and expanding your reach um, very quickly, I believe, this year. Um, but the videos that went viral on TikTok showed Starbucks and McDonald's being delivered. Um, and right now, and you can tell me whether this is going to change, McDonald's and Starbucks are housing the cost. So to a consumer, it's simply the goods that you buy is what you pay. How sustainable is that? Uh, so Flytrex works with drones, which are basically robots. Uh, you don't have to pay salaries to robots. And that way we can take the cost almost an order of magnitude, uh, make it an order of magnitude more affordable than using humans for deliveries, especially in the suburbs where the population density is too low to optimize for multiple deliveries in the same run. And because of that, we can basically offer a free delivery to our customers in charge a very small amount from the different restaurant chains and retailers. So it's basically a win-win situation for everybody. The customer doesn't have to pay for uh, the delivery and the restaurant or retailer can pay a lot less than what they're accustomed today to uh, making those on-demand deliveries happen. I mean, if this can be scaled up, this is such a dramatic disruptor to traditional food delivery, particularly if, as you say, you can make 10 to 15 drone deliveries an hour compared to someone on a bike or someone driving around. What it's going to come down to is, I think, air regulation. And to your point, autonomous drones flying around um, creates some degree of alarm. So talk to me about the possibility of not only scaling up the one mile radius, which I think is very important, but also getting permission to go um, outside of the scope of the area that you have today. Well, yeah, drone deliveries have been a pie in the sky for almost a decade now. Uh, Flytrex has been working with the Federal Aviation Administration for almost five years now. Our drones seem like something you can buy online, but they're actually passing through uh, certification as if they're commercial airplanes. So we're talking with the same teams that Boeing or Airbus or any other airplane manufacturer has to speak with to get the needed certification. It's a lengthy process. It has to be done because we have to make sure that the skies are safe as they are today. And we're nearing the end of that process. And at the end of that almost five-year process, we are going to have a certification that will allow us to expand our services on a federal level throughout the U.S. So uh, we're going to move from three stations to a lot more, hopefully in the next, uh, in the next year or so. 
in the next year. Interesting. Prime Air is Amazon's offer, I believe, and Wing is Alphabet. How fierce mm -hmm. is competition from them, particularly given the inbuilt consumer market, particularly as far as uh, Amazon is concerned, mm -hmm. Yariv? How, how worried are you? So there are more than 82 million single-family detached homes in the U.S., so more than 80, 82 million <laughs> backyards. It's an infinite market. Uh, I'm not competing with Amazon because Amazon is going to perform deliveries from their warehouses. They're not going to deliver hamburgers for McDonald's or merchandise for Best Buy. Uh, so you yeah. know, I can service everybody else. And we have to remember <laughs> that Amazon is roughly... 50% of the online ordering market, but there is a small, very small portion of the entire retail market. So uh, if I can deliver you your iPhone in 10 minutes versus getting them from Amazon in 30 minutes because their warehouse is 50 miles away and I'm delivering it from the nearest shopping center, then it's going to be an interesting value proposition to the, uh, to the end customer. <laughs> yeah, I understand. Um, very quickly, because I, sometimes I have been known to be an incredibly lazy little moo moo and order a, a Starbucks coffee or other coffee brands, and it's only about a 200 yard distance. Um, and then I always bemoan because my coffee spilled or it's all slushy around the top. How and you stable have to stand in this? line. You, 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 you yeah, don't want to stand in line. You, you just want to, you know, <laughs> I'm lazy. for you to just, you want to, you know, you want to continue chill and, and watching Netflix or Disney or whatever. And just get your food or your coffee, and that's what we're here to do. Uh, we've, you know, usually when people register to the service, one of the first things they'll try to order is either eggs or coffee, just to test us. But at the end, these are, you know, robots that just perform the same way again and again. And so the quality is pretty high. In one of the videos, the, the a lady is ordering Starbucks, and you can see there isn't a drop. There isn't even a small spill of, of coffee over there. Yes. And we've been no doing a lot No eggs were broken in the making of this production. No Harry, I have to go. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Great to have you on. Thank you so much. And keep us abreast of progress, please, particularly as far as regulations are concerned. Yuri Bash there. We'll so You're more than you. welcome to uh, come and visit us. Oh, I would love to. Thank you. It's a date. All right, up next, a canine conversationalist. Could my dog Romeo have a much appreciation for language as his namesake? Why a new study says it's plausible. Welcome back to the Finally on First Move. Wherefore art thou Romeo? It's a question I've sometimes asked, many times asked actually, and why I named him. But that's because my dog Romeo likes to play hide and seek. And here's the poetic pooch himself. And speaking of language, a new study has been exploring how much of what we say dogs actually pick up on. Turns out dogs know when we're speaking a foreign language and when we're speaking to them in gibberish. 18 dogs listened to a book while researchers monitored their brains. They found that different parts of the brain lit up when they heard familiar languages rather than ones they didn't recognise, which is enough to give us all pause for thought. I'll tell you what, my dog recognises the word food in any language. That's it for the show. Good to be back. Stay safe and I'll be back with you in a few moments on Connect the World. Stay with CNN. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. 
And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.